This is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Jonathan Bernstein, Bernstein and Casey B.K. Dominguez to talk about The Making of Presidential Candidates 2020. This book was published in 2019, in the fall of 2019, by Roman and Littlefield. And this is part of a longer series, but I think that Jonathan Bernstein will tell us a little bit more about that. Today, I'd like to welcome both Jonathan and Casey to the podcast and ask them to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to this particular project. Hi, Casey and Jonathan. Hello. Hello. This is a series that goes back. I, um, I guess I should introduce myself. Um, Jonathan Bernstein. I am a political scientist, but my uh, day job is that I'm a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Um, so I came to this. This is a series that goes, I believe, to the 1996 election cycle. Um, and it was Bill Mayer's edited volume, William G. Mayer. Uh, and he put, put it out every four years. And he added me on as a co-editor for the 2012 editions. And, you know, it's a, it's a premier edited volume of, about um, presidential nominations. Uh, the process and everything about nominate presidential nominations. So then um, the uh, it, it uh, went into um, well, it didn't happen in 2016, but we brought it back. Uh, Bill uh, decided not to do it anymore, and uh, Casey and I decided to take it up for this one, and I think it turned out great. So. Um, we're happy about it. And Casey, you want to introduce yourself and then I'll tell, uh, get to the next part or I'm not sure how we do that. Uh, sure. Next. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm Casey Dominguez. Uh, I'm a professor at the university of San Diego. Uh, I teach American politics. Um, I, my, uh, I've, I've done research in a variety of areas, um, beginning with, uh, Jonathan and I were both interested in political party networks in the very early days in the early two thousands, when that was, that was just an idea that people were coming up with before the UCLA, the party decides was written. So we've been talking about these issues for a long time. And I was, uh, very excited when, uh, he asked me to possibly be a part of, uh, editing this volume. And, uh, that's how I got involved. And Jonathan, you said you wanted to talk about the next part. Well, I, I actually, I should, I said I, my day job is, is Bloomberg Opinion, but I should also say that my research has been on um, party networks and that sort of thing. Um, you know, what, what some of us are calling the California School of uh, Party Research, um, since I worked with Casey about it a while ago. In fact, I had a chapter in the 2000 edition of this book, which was about um networks of party elites and how they played roles in campaigns and then transitioned to the White House. So, um, you know, I've been involved in this volume for a long time, but now doing it as as the co-editor with, with Casey. Um, and, you know, we, we brought this thing back in part because I wanted to write a chapter, but in part because um, the, it had become, I think, and since I was involved in the last one, I think it's fair that I can say it, it, it was a little stale and we sort of brought it up to date and and it looks much more, I think, and I hope, like, um, you know, contemporary political science and not like 1990s political science. So we'll, I think um, we were happy with the group of authors. We have, you know, wound up with a strong group of authors, and I think we were happy with how it turned out. 
And in terms of sort of saying as it's it's more up to date um, and not only incorporates contemporary political scientists and authors, but you also are including different areas that were not included in previous volumes. Can you talk a little bit about what were additions to this volume that weren't perhaps in previous iterations of the sort of making of presidential candidate? Um, well, yeah, we can start with chapter one right away, which was, um, which, uh, was about women running for president, uh, which, you know, had been a relevant, relevant topic for quite some time, but had not been covered, I don't think, in previous editions of the book. So we have a great chapter, uh, by Linda Bigorin and Mary McHugh, um, talking about a 20 nomination contest. Are there other chapters as well that were more up to date or weren't involved in previous books, versions of the book? I think it was sort of more open to newer ideas. So, you know, um, some of it, you know, we have nine chapters in the book. I think some of them are covering similar topics to what we've had in the past, but I think we were more open to sort of like uh, the essay that uh, Julia is Julia about um, whether parties are inherently conservative, which I think is a fascinating essay about the institutional um, incentives of parties to um, resist change in some ways because they are institutions themselves. And I don't think that, that that kind of sort of conceptual thing had been in previous editions of it. So I was happy to have that in this one. Um, Casey, I don't know if you have any further thoughts on that. Well, not as compared to previous editions. I'm a little bit, I'm not, I'm not quite as familiar as the earlier editions as you are. And so with this, with this book, the making of the presidential candidates and with the previous iterations, obviously this is a question about understanding who becomes candidates for the white house. Um, and so previous iterations have the same sort of thrust, uh, but what do we learn from reading through these chapters about the presidential candidates themselves and what's required in terms of making them? Casey, you want to, you want to take a first crack at that? Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, when we were originally thinking about the project, we had chapters organized sort of by rules and institutions and then voters. Um, and as it as it evolved, um, I, I think it's a little bit more chronological. Um, we start with candidates, right? Because the process begins with candidates as self-starters. Um, and then we've got a chapter about fundraising, because that's the first thing you do if you want to run for president. Um, and then we've got a chapter about the media and, uh, you know, the role, the really important role that the media plays in helping candidates gain traction, um, followed by a, a great discussion of how vote, primary voters get involved. Um, and then the last section, basically the last half of the book is all about parties as institutions and the ways, the different ways that we've got a, a chapter about the party rules and how the party rules are continuing to evolve in real time. Uh, we've got Jonathan's essay about how um, the the party and the media interact to produce, uh, especially candidates like Donald Trump. Um, and then Julia Zari's piece about 
um, parties uh, trying to frame, uh, trying to choose a nominee. And if there are, if there's a, a certain conservatism to the way that parties approach choosing their nominee. And then we've got uh, a, an article about um, straw polls and the roles that, that the roles, the, the sort of limited historical role of straw polls. And then we've got a, a wonderful um, historical piece about uh, the, the origins of party nominations itself in the, uh, around the year 1800. Um, so, so I think it's, it, we, we, it takes a reader through or, or student readers through sort of the chronology and the actors and the institutions that affect how candidates become the party nominee. And in terms of the sort of how candidates become the party nominee, as you note, I did contribute with two of my two co-authors, Linda Beale and Mary McHugh, the question of masculinity and, and female candidates and understanding the nomination contest and this sort of ongoing quest for Madam President. Um, but there's there's so much more to discuss in terms of how we get to a candidate as a nominee for president. And as you note, there's the question of money, there's the question of media, there's the question of obviously the role of the parties. Um, this is something I constantly talk about with my students during nomination contests is what are the parties doing and how are they operating at the state and local level. Um, but I wanted to ask if there were surprises in terms of the research that your authors were doing and when they were turning in their drafts and their chapters to you, what you found that was unexpected or something that you hadn't really thought about in terms of the nomination process itself? Um, I think for me, the, the one that was really the biggest surprise was, or, or at least that got me thinking the most, was um, Julia's case about um, whether institutional bias towards being conservative. As um, someone who got into this through studying the political parties, what I think that people who study political parties have in common is most of us really like political parties, and we think that we ha- we have a bias in favor of them. Um, and uh, so we tend to look towards them, towards parties as um, producing good results if they work properly. And what Julia sort of maintains is, well, yes, but... Um, you know, the parties also have this sort of inherently, because they're institutions, they have difficulty sometimes being the uh, generators of change that party actors may want them to be. And I thought that was something that I had not ever thought of before. And I thought was very interesting. I would, I would say that I had, I had two, I mean, you know, a, a lot of the book is, um, more like literature review. So there's, there's not necessarily a lot of groundbreaking here. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's, it's not useful. Um, but, um, so there, there weren't a ton of surprises in the research, but I will say there were two, two points that I keep going back to, um, and that I think have updated a little bit how I, how I teach about this in the, in the chapter on voter choice in presidential primaries by John Sides, Michael Tesler, and Lynn Babrick, um, who, of course, wrote Identity Crisis and um, Sides and Vavrick wrote. Uh, um, so, you know, they've, they've been looking at um, systematically analyzing how voters have reacted to the, the presidential campaigns throughout the, the primary and the general, but including the nomination campaign for several cycles. Um, but uh, they had a, an interesting conclusion um, in their 
in their chapter about how voters make choices in the nomination contest, um, that, that, that groups of voters are going to react differently to the candidates. And there's just no way to know in advance how intra-party sort of demographic groups um, are going to react to the candidates that emerge out of the um, sort of candidate soup. Um, and, and I thought a lot about that as we sort of were looking at all of the 25 candidates who came up in 2019 and 2020 uh, and on the Democratic side and sort of looking for whether big demographic groups were going to lean one way or the other and how that might affect the race. Um, so I thought that and and just sort of the unpredictability of that, you know, were, were young voters going to, um, you know, take it over the top for Bernie uh, and and sort of watching for those kind of demographic shifts um, in 2020. I thought that was an, an interesting observation um, for everything that we know about how voters behave. You don't know how groups of voters are going to react to particular presidential candidates and campaigns. And that just that introduces a. a an unpredictability um, for everything that we know already. Uh, and then the other thing that I thought was, again, not surprising, um, but uh, was a really interesting observation and a really uh, uh, useful analysis was in the uh, Bill Mayer's chapter on the changes in the presidential selection process from 1792 to 1824. Um, and he just really systematically goes through, uh, you know, when I teach my students about the early presidential nomination processes, you know, I sort of lump everything before 1824 together as like the, the, you know, King Caucus. Um, and he lays out that it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't actually all a congressional caucus. Um, there were several different methods chosen. And I thought that was, that's really interesting detail to be able to offer students and to understand uh, at a different level of complexity. Um, and then he does a really excellent analysis of um, how the Electoral College by 1824 became a rubber stamp. Um, sort of how, how many states were using a uh, a system of um, selecting the state's electors, and this is for the general election, uh, you know, for the for the general election, not for the primaries, um, but for selecting the electors um, in accordance with the vote of the people in that state. How that general ticket system came to be adopted, um, and he's got a, a really systematic analysis of that, and I think that really helps me um, flesh out that that story for my students. So again, uh, you know, there's there's. A lot of great analysis um, uh, in the book, but those were those were two observations that I thought were were really insightful. And so I wanted to take each of you, if if you don't mind, through your own contributions to the to the book itself. And Casey, your chapter focused specifically on on money and fundraising. Um, so could you provide or could you talk a little bit about? what you were looking for in terms of understanding the role of this within the nomination process? Sure. Um, so, you know, aim, the, the, the book is aimed at, uh, you know, under, undergrad, people who want to understand the presidential nomination process. And, and honestly, that's going to come mostly in the in undergraduate classes. Um, and so I wanted to uh, sort of hook students on the question that they start being interested in, which is why does all this t- cost so much money? Um, and so uh, there really have been a lot of changes to the way that primary presidential primaries have been financed in the last, certainly in the last 40 years during my lifetime, but also in the last 20 years uh, since the public financing system collapsed. Um, and so I, I, I want to 
sort of highlight that there really have been some significant changes in the amount of spending, and that partly is due to um, the collapse of the public financing system. Um, but also, so I, I ask a couple of questions um, in the chapter. You know, why is it that that campaigns have to raise so much money? Um, uh, and it's I show I, I sort of do a, a literature review uh, to show that it's you know it's partly about building familiarity and name recognition. Um, it's partly because of the front-loaded cycle. It's partly because of competition. Um, and Steve Forbes's, uh, you know, competition in 1996 helped to drive out, helped to, um, you know, get encourage George W. Bush to to back out of the public financing system. And that's a really important part. That competition is a really important part of the story. You have to be afraid of a billionaire running against you, and so raise as much money as possible. Um, and the professionalization is another part of that. Um, and then I think the other the other part of the story that students are always interested in is does money actually buy the nomination? Um, and certainly with my students, we were closely watching, you know, how, how when, when we were all together this semester, uh, the Bloomberg campaign and asking, OK, so is this a good test? Can money buy the nomination if you throw an unlimited amount of money at it? Um, and what I uh, what I talked about uh, in the chapter is uh, that it, it doesn't it, it really doesn't the literature doesn't seem to indicate that that's the case, that it's that, that the parties have a role to play, that endorsements play a role, that uh, pre-existing name recognition plays a really important role and polls play, a really, you know, as, as reflected in polls um, in, in giving someone the nomination and that fundraising is probably more an indicator of, of a candidate's strength than a determinant of the outcome. Um, and that uh, party, that the money that you, that a candidate would raise from, the party network might be the best indicator. And I, I think we probably saw an example of, of that sort of party decides kind of uh, model um, with the Biden nomination. Um, so those are, those were the topics that I talked about. And I, I tried to frame it in terms of questions that students would be interested in. And Jonathan, you talk about um, the expanded party's influence, which of course also then makes us think about, who's in the party, how the parties operate, and if they are coherent wholes or not. Um, yes. Um, and, you know, the sort of background to this is the longstanding question of um, since the McGovern Fraser reforms before the 1972 uh, cycle of who actually makes the nomination? Is it the parties as it was before 1972, or is it as Nelson Folsby thought, um, reacting to the McGovern nomination, Jimmy Carter nomination? Um, is it sort of a random slash media effect that, well, whoever gets, you know, that, that political primaries by their nature um, are sort of open uh to all kinds of influences because voters, you know, don't really know the difference between 25 different candidates um, as there were for Democrats in 2020 or, or 16 or 17, whatever it was candidates as there were for Republicans. And so there can be really random effects. Um, so that's, you know, there's sort of the, the Polsby point of view. And then there's the other point of view, which is that parties successfully learned um, after the 1970s to control nominations um, and that 
part of the way to think about that is to think of parties not just as the formal party organizations, the you know the RNC and the DNC and the you know Michigan State Party or the Cook County Democratic Party, um, but as a combination of of formal party organizations and informal networks, um, which is what I call the expanded party. Uh, and so I had been saying for some time that that the uh, you know, along with the authors of the party's party sides, um, that and Casey and some other people, um, that that we think that that parties played a strong role in nominations, and you know that had looked pretty good for several cycles, and it looks good for Hillary Clinton in 2016 on the Democratic side, but it looks very very bad for them in 2016. So the question is, okay, what happened? Were we wrong all along, or? Has the system changed so that parties no longer control control things, um, or was Polsby right all the time? And you know there was a certain randomness to it. So what I looked at is okay. So why does Trump win despite clearly uh, not being the, the candidate of the party, no matter really how you define the party? So what I wound up thinking is there's uh, sort of three elements to this. One is having to do with uh, the Republican Party itself, as it exists now, and saying that um, following, you know, Norm Ornstein, Tom Mann, and some others, um, talking about how dysfunctional the Republican Party is. So that, for example, um, one of the key elements of this was that right before the Iowa caucuses in um, in 2016. Uh, Ted Cruz, senator from Texas, gets the endorsement of the organized Christian conservative movement, um, despite the fact that Cruz was really no better for them than half a dozen of the other candidates. Um, But he had the disadvantage that uh, most of the rest of the party really hated Ted Cruz. And so, you know, in a more functional party, the different factions would have found a way to work together. And in this case, they really didn't. So part one, functional Republican Party. Part two um, goes back to something that actually Nelson Polsby said at one point um, in consequence of party reform, which is that stability is good for parties. Uh, Stability in rules and procedures is good for parties. Changes are bad for parties. So I looked at sort of some of the real changes to the procedure in 2016 and, and found two in particular that seemed important. One was the um, demise, the the absence of the Ames straw poll. Uh, Bill Mayer talks about in his chapter about straw polls and the, the end of straw polls as a uh, important point. And uh, the question of whether, well, had there been an Ames straw poll in August of uh, 2015, would how would that have changed the process. And I think that wound up helping Trump in various different ways. Second way that I talked about was changes in media norms, um, in particular uh, CNN um, and then a lot of other media outlets following CNN decided to cover, had had in previous years, they had followed what on sides and Lynn Vavrick talk about as, um, and now I'm going to forget the words for it. Um, the that's it. Discovery um, uh, of candidates so that candidates would get discovered by the media. They'd hype them and then they'd, they'd do scrutiny. And so they and and then they move on to the next story. So candidates would would surge up in the polls, then get 
uh, critical coverage, and then the media would move on to another story. What happened in 2015, 2016, and the four years since then, is that the CNN in particular and the other media also discovered that Donald Trump was a great story and they could make Donald Trump into a story that continued over and over and over again. And I talk in the piece about how that's somewhat similar to how CNN um, discovered the missing Malaysian airplane as a continuing story that even though that it wasn't actually generating any news, they could keep it as they could make it into news just because they said it was news. And that sort of is what happened with Donald Trump in lots of sort of institutional ways. So because the norms and procedure changed, that turned out to make it di more difficult for the party to come together. And then the third thing was there's just a bunch of dumb luck that, you know, when Marco Rubio was about to surge into control, he had one of the worst debate uh, performances of any major candidate ever, uh, that John Kasich acted weird through the campaign and just did things like n not entering primaries despite having a chance to win so that by but he stayed in the race anyway and no candidate really has behaved like that because the incentives are that you have to enter all the primaries um he was acting like sort of a 1950s candidate who could pick and choose which primaries to go into so all of those things wind up essentially defeating the party and and giving us Donald Trump and my argument is basically, well, the parties are pretty strong, but there's a lot of contingency and incomplete control, which sort of matches the parties themselves, which are non-hierarchical and loosely structured. Um, so it's not about the specific procedures that you can fix by procedural reforms, as it is about through the nature of the parties, that they're never going to be um, completely able to control things. And, you know... As it turns out, that gives us Donald Trump in, in 2016. And so it, a lot of the chapters, as you note, as you talked about, about half the book are devoted to sort of thinking about the role of the parties in relation to the nomination in some form or fashion. So I wanted to ask a little bit about um, the, the question of straw polls, um, as you just mentioned, Jonathan, as well as, you know, some of the um, rule changes that transpired um, that that are in chapters five and six by Josh Putnam and William Mayer. Casey, you want to take a crack at it, or I just talked for a long time. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. So chapter six is, uh, I think, what we what we've all decided is the uh, the definitive history of straw polls and their role in the nomination process um, by Bill Mayer, uh, and so he goes th he goes through the uh, sort of the rise of the straw poll as something that the media gets fixated on and the uh, demise of the straw poll as the media in the early 2000s realizes that actually they're not representative and they really ought to be relying on actual polls, which there were enough of, um, you know, later on that, that you didn't have to rely on these straw polls, um, but that they were a, uh, for a while, a way of trying to gauge um, the status of candidates in the invisible primary. Um, but that as better measures came about, they, they, they were replaced. It's interesting to actually sort of watch the history of a, of an institution that kind of came on the scene. Uh, people realized it wasn't really that great of an institution and it, it died. And Putnam's is about, again, sort of the nomination rules. Um, and, and they, they sort of shift and change as you note, Jonathan, as you noted, Jonathan, um, and as a lot of the the sort of discussion keeps 
discussing or a lot of the public discussion keeps going on about how um, people are feeling about the rule changes. Um, And so Putnam talks about how the 2016 affected the 2020 race and how the we've we've talked about in the past in political science how 2012 affected the 2016 race so the presidential nomination rules seem to come up as something that often shapes the next iteration i was going to say um you know if 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 we had decided to write an introduction which would we ultimately decided not to do um you know i think the fluidity and how just the the amount of change in the presidential nomination process it is this ever evolving um, thing just from you know from the beginning of the republic all the way through today and I think Putnam's chapter does a really great job he gets into the nitty gritty like I stuff that he he just he is the expert on following the uh, the all of the nitty gritty rules changes in the DNC and the RNC um, and all the state primary rules. Like, like he, he is the go-to person in political science, as far as we can tell. Um, and he, he lays out the, the minute details of the conversations. Um, like why, why is it that certain rules changes were made by the Republicans in 2012 in response to their loss in 2008? Um, but that, you know, once the once he notes that once the party wins with a certain set of rules, they keep those rules. And then when they lose with a certain set of rules, then they tweak those rules. And so, uh, you know, this year, the the Democrats have the tweaks that were brought about by the, the Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton campaign sort of negotiating after the election about how the rules would look for 2020 um, because they lost in 2016. Um, but in 2016, the Democrats were dealing with, hey, the rules had, you know, we won the the, the you know, Obama won in 2012, so there's no reason to change those rules. Um, so he 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 gets into the very fine points of um, how the party nomination process is always evolving. But I think that um, from the very you know first chapter about uh, you know women emerging as serious contenders for the presidency, um, all the way to the last chapter about uh, how the how the the you know congress how King Caucus sort of came about and then left the scene in the early 1800s, um, you know, change is is definitely the name of the game in the presidential nomination process. And one of the things that I think the ways that sort of this stuff goes together is when you think about, um, you know, the changes in procedures with the straw polls and the rules, changes in who the candidates are, um, changes in how resources are raised and used, and then you think about um, where, where and how the media works, and then you think about the uh, voter uh, chapter, um, sides and Tesla and Vavrick about how contingent everything is. That that we don't, you know, parties are not fixed the way that general elections are. We have, you know, people who have party ID, so they pretty much are predictable. There's so much unpredictable, you know. So you can have things like, as we saw this time, um. You know, a, a relatively, it, it turned out um, that the key to Joe Biden winning the nomination probably was that he finished second in Nevada, uh, in Nevada, sorry, um, ahead of a couple other candidates while Bernie Sanders won easily. But because Biden did that, he managed to emerge as the alternative to Bernie and then got endorsements and did well in South Carolina. And, you know, 
thinking through how that works depends a lot on all those ingredients before it, who the candidates are, what kinds of people are allowed to be candidates and how they're allowed to be candidates, which is sort of what the first chapter of the volume is about, and how the rules are arranged that, you know, that we have these four carve-out states that come at the beginning that are fairly on a fairly stable schedule now, as Josh Putnam talks about, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, through the process. So, uh, and then how that... Um, implicates parties in what actually happens and how parties have to deal with all of these changes and uncertainties while parties themselves are changing and uncertain institutions. And and so I guess one of my sort of remaining questions is given what we've seen in terms of the process in 2020 and all of the uncertainty that this process kind of has embedded in it, oddly enough, it's a it's a certain process with lots of uncertainty. Um, what do you both anticipate may be some of the changes we'll see in four years' time? I think there you go back to what Josh Putnam says: the winners tend to be conservative in their changes, but losers tend to change a lot. Um, if Joe Biden wins, um, Democrats will probably um, keep their procedures the same. Of course, we have a, this could be a possibility of a one-term president who might not run for a second term. People are talking about that. I don't know how likely it is. Um, if he's running for a second term, then you would really expect not much institutional change because um, the nomination won't be presumably very contested. Um, on the Republican side, we will have a contested nomination uh, next time around. If Trump wins, um, he's going to determine what the procedures will be. Um, if he loses, we're going to have a lot of very difficult to predict um, outcomes in terms of what where the Republican Party goes from there. And I'm not going to even guess at what where what they do institutionally or in any other way. Casey, anything to add? No, I think that 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 <laughs> I think that was a. a- what I would say. I, I, I'm looking for somebody to tell me like Iowa is, is, is or isn't going to be first up after sort of the debacle that was a, a lot of Iowa. <laughs> Such a good question. Um, you know, I think the Democrats have been moving toward more inclusion um, and the, the caucuses are a a pretty exclusive institution. Um, so it's, it's a tra- tradition versus this trend toward inclusion in the Democratic Party. And I don't I don't think we know when they're going to resolve that in favor of not having the Iowa caucuses. Um, But the trend seems to mediate against it, I would say. Yeah, I I think, you know, if, if Biden wins the presidency, um, of course he was, he was somebody who was at least on the surface, not helped by Iowa this time. So he has no stake in keeping it there. Um, I mean, he's, he's got clobbered through, twice in Iowa over the years. Um, but it turns out that that moving it has a lot of costs, and it's not clear that there are definite benefits, especially in the short term. So I, I think it's going to turn out to be a lot harder to, to replace Iowa than it looked you know, back in February this year. Um, what we have seen is that the procedures changed this year, and they botched actually carrying it out. Um, so I think that we would see more successful procedures in Iowa if it was to go first the next time. And they might be on, you know, 
Uh, they might get one more chance, but make sure you don't botch it again um, as a guess. But um, it's not as easy to remove Iowa as you know as it looks. I I mean I understand that it it just seemed an interesting evening um, and proceeding uh, and the and the week that followed <laughs> um, as we moved to New Hampshire. I, I would just say that the lesson from Iowa is that uh, the news media does not deal well with not receiving uh, election returns exactly when it says on their, uh, you know, nightly news schedule, exactly on their timetable that they're going to get them. And that bodes poorly for this November. <laughs> Never mind. Very much so. Yeah. And so um, I wanted to ask each of you, now that you have a book on the 2020 nomination, what you are each respectively working on now. I'm writing columns. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm considering whether I want to write an essay about the Biden nomination, which I, I do have a few things to say about it, so I might do so. Okay. Casey? I have been working for a long time on a book manuscript that I am revising um, about the uh, evolution of war presidential war powers, and I am continuing to revise that manuscript. Got it. So when the manuscript is done and the book is out, will you come and speak with me about it on the New Books Network again? I would be delighted. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Um, I assume that the making of the presidential candidates 2020 is available at Roman and Littlefield um, website for purchase. So today I was joined by Jonathan Bernstein and Casey Dominguez, who are the editors of the making of the presidential candidates 2020. This book was published in um, the fall of 2019 by Roman and Littlefield. It's available at Roman and Littlefield's website and any place else where you purchase books. Um, And I'd like to thank Casey and Jonathan for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you.